All right, if you could go ahead and make your way in here, we'll go ahead and get started. There's a lot to cover, and this is a huge and important topic. So one thing I will say, I don't have a planned introduction because we have so much. So I thought the best thing to do would be an off-the-cuff introduction, which will definitely take way more time than I'm intending. But I think to set the stage, the reason I think this is so important in particular is not just because it's a huge topic in our culture, but because these are actually things we're seeing within our own youth group and things that we have been um, dealing with and trying to minister to, to kids struggling with these issues for probably close to four years now. And so, you know, if you're wondering like, well, when does this actually happen? It has. It, it already did. So as you're kind of thinking about your kids, I want you to feel not pressure, but I want you to feel um, a sense of urgency in understanding these things. Not completely, obviously none of us will completely understand them, but a sense of urgency in trying to seek out what the Bible says and then how to act on what the Bible says. And so that's, uh, that's what we'll try to do a little bit today. So the topic is addressing issues of sexuality. Okay, so let's go ahead and pray and then we will dig in. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for Lord, all you do for us, for your kindness to us, for your love, for your compassion, and for, Lord, your steadfastness. Oh, Lord, every single one of us in here, we are sinners in need of a Savior, and we still struggle against our sin, and, and we fight our sin, and, and at times we fail in our sin. And yet, because of what your Son, Jesus Christ, has done on our behalf, we understand that you can be steadfast and long-suffering. And so, Father, help us to have just a portion of the grace that you have for us as we try to minister to our children and to our church and to those struggling with issues of sexuality. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what does the Bible say about sexuality? The first thing I will say is that I have done a pretty thorough teaching on this on a Wednesday night. And when I say thorough, I mean probably 35 minutes of just digging into what the Bible says and then some practical implications. So this will actually be reversed, and we're going to look at just a, a smaller portion of what the Bible says, and then more practical. Uh, but if you want a thorough understanding of what the Bible says, you can go find that. Just go to the search bar and type sexuality, and I'm sure that will pop up. But one of the things I want to say, and we all just have to be okay with this, when it comes to issues of sexuality, as believers, we have to be okay with just accepting the Bible on its terms. I mean, you're going to find yourself at moments where there are questions brought up that you may not be able to answer. There may be arguments that you just think are silly and not biblical, and you're just kind of like spinning. The reality is when someone says, well, Jesus never taught, or Deuteronomy, or Leviticus, or blah, 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 what we have to understand is we stand on the Bible, and, and that's it. And we have to be okay with that, even if we walk away looking like the unintelligent Neanderthals that we are anyways, right? It's just kind of, it's kind of what we have to agree upon when we look at stuff like this, because we are up against the culture in this, um, in this fight. So what does the Bible say about sexuality? So first is the origin of sexuality. And I hope you've realized as we've talked about every single issue so far, we've, we've started in Genesis chapter one. That should actually be really encouraging to you if you have small children in particular, because you will spend a lot of time driving your kids back to Genesis chapter one. And it's, it's the beginning. It's the creation story. It's a fun place to be with your kids anyways. 
But a lot of this stuff stands upon the foundation of Genesis chapter 1. So be encouraged by that. Genesis 1, 26 through 28 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, so when it says that God created man in his image and likeness, what is happening is Genesis chapter 1 is defining this, um, this God creator and his creation, and he's using relational terms to do that. So there's, there's this divine relationship between the creator and the creature. The reason that's really important as you think about the, again, we've talked about this, but the creator-creature relationship is God is the one, the creator is the one who is defining and determining their being, right? They're made in his image and in his likeness. So what that means is as they live their lives, as they image forth, as they liken their God creator, their being will be determined by, but it will also express their creator. So in a sense, when God created man and woman, he was creating them to be an expression of sorts of himself, right? That's, that's a really important thing. So his design is intentional, and it's to be lived out in a very specific way according to that design. So now when we think about sexuality, I want to define it very, very quickly, very simply too. Uh, sexuality, like our culture defines it not only as our identity, so whether you're male or female or any of the other things that you can be now, that's your sexuality. But sexuality is also seen as activity. So there is a who you are, and then there's a what you do with who you are, right? That's the, the, the twofold aspect of, of sexuality. So if we understand that we are created in God's image and in his likeness, then that means naturally that we, uh, sorry, that we cannot um, define our sexuality by self-realized sexual desires, right? Like we, we can't look at ourselves as the creature and say, okay, well, I feel this way, so I think that's what I am. Well, if, if it goes against the design of the creator, what Genesis 1 tells us is that it's not a proper expression or identity, right? So it's established by God's design. So that means the created order, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, uh, it informs and binds our understanding of sexuality. We can't go past what we find in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. So our sexuality is only understood rightly as a created reality. It, it is only how you come out of your mother's womb that is your sexuality, right? Your biology, your function, and even the limitations on your sexuality, which we talked about last Sunday. So again, Genesis 1 and 2, the created order, it has the bearing on our identity and the activity of our sexuality. All right, number two, sexuality is a part of an intentionally ordered good creation. Okay, so this is one reason why reading your Bible, I think maybe it was Jeremy had mentioned just read your Bible with your kids because you will come across things that are just really important that you may not ever necessarily think to point them to. I think this is kind of one of those case in points where you're reading through Genesis 1 and you're like, oh wow, look at that. Well, I think there's a lot here. So Genesis 1, 
29 through 31. It says, And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning on the sixth day. So here's what we see. A part of God's creative order is God's desire that his creation flourish. So that's number one. When God created everything, he wanted it to flourish. He wanted everything to have its proper food. He wanted Adam to have a helper. He wanted the stars to hang and twinkle just like they would. He wanted the ocean to function. He wanted the plants and the tree. He, he wanted everything to function in a way that it would flourish. Like not that it would just be good, but that it would be really good. Like this whole thing. So what we can take away from that then is that God did not create anything in a way that would leave it lacking. I think if we believe that God was a good creator, then when he created all things, he didn't create it in a way that it would look at it and be like, man, if we just had, right? Well, when that happened, sin entered into the world, right? When it was really good, they had every single thing they needed. So what we can say is that when we look at creation and God's creative work, we can look at it as one of provision. Right? He, he gives them a relationship, not only with one another, but most specifically with himself. He gives them food. He gives them work. He gives them a purpose, right? The man is supposed to cultivate. The woman is supposed to help her husband. He is eventually going to give them children as they come together. And he also gives them a sexual expression to do so. So that's just a few things in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 that he has given them that will allow them to flourish according to his design. What I want you to see here in Genesis 1, 29 and 31, though, is that creation is ordered. There's an order to it. Even what every individual part of creation will eat is intentional and purposeful. Look at Genesis 1, 24 and 25. It says, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. There's, there's order here. There's this thing, which we're talking about different types of animals, being created with complementary partners. Everything has its other thing that fits, right? And so there's order to this, right? There's, there's honestly, when you look at Genesis 1 and 2, there's really no question as to how creation is actually supposed to function. The beauty of Eden is it's actually pretty simple, right? It's much more complex now that Genesis 3 has happened and we've, we've had sin enter into the world. But as far as Genesis 1 and 2 is concerned, it was a pretty awesome existence. Everything knew what its purpose was. Everything had an outlet for its purpose. And every need that was felt was provided for by God. And that extends from the food you eat to the expression of your sexual desire to everything. There's order. And then finally here, number three, sexuality is treated as an outlet of expressing faithfulness or not. All right, so the seventh commandment, Exodus 20, 14, you shall not commit adultery. And then a, a, a question by a lawyer asking about the greatest commandment. 
in Luke 10, 25 through 28, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he, the lawyer, answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all of your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Okay, so sexual self-expression or autonomy is the thing that's championed by our culture, but the Bible doesn't teach anything like that, that we are the owners or controllers of our body. Now, we want to we be careful when we're talking to our young children, because I, we're a room full of adults. We understand what I mean when I say the word autonomy. That is, you are not sovereign, right? Even though you want to have control of your body and it is your body, we are not autonomous from our Creator. Right? He is the one who is in control still, even though we are the adults and we have children and we tell people what to do, right? The Bible doesn't teach that sexuality is like that, that it's a, a self-expression or that it's an autonomous thing that we just get to figure out and decide and then express how, however we want. Well, what the Bible teaches is that sexuality is a sacred reality with righteous standards. That's what the Bible says about sexuality. Right, our, our covenantal obligation to God and not ourselves. That's always how our sexuality is understood in the Bible. Your sexuality is a stewardship of the relationship that you have with your Creator. It's not the expression of how you feel. Right, I think that's actually a really important part when we think about sexuality. Right, we can have all the arguments, we can point to all the right passages that talk about homosexuality or... Um, divorce or infidelity or any other thing. We can point to those things. But for believers, first and foremost, the expression of our sexuality is a matter of righteousness. Will we be faithful to our covenant with our God, or will we be faithful to ourselves? That's the question we're asking. And that's the question that matters at the end of the day, more than winning any argument. Because I think, when I think about my boys, I mean, I remember growing up, and, and, and I grew up in a, I, I maybe have told you in here, I don't know, I grew up in a broken home, unfettered access, um, and I'll just say it, I'm not proud, but I just am not embarrassed either. I, I saw pornography for the very first time when I was in the fifth grade. Like, that was the first time I, I saw it. And even sometime in that time frame, it came to light that I had been looking at pornography, and my mom was like, hey, that's just really bad. Like, don't, don't do that. And like, that was it. And I'm like, okay, so you mean, you mean do what you want, <laughs> right? Like, is that what you mean, mom? Because I'm, I'm in the fifth grade and I'm smart. I know what you really mean. And so I just continued to do what I did. And, and nobody, nobody had a, an understanding of what I was actually doing and then my grandparents would take me to church, and it would just be like, hey, stop sinning, don't be a sinner, place your faith in Jesus, quit being a sinner, you sinner. And I'm thinking, wait, so this is bad? Okay, well, how do I, like, what do I do? Well, the answer was stop sinning. Quit. Like, like don't do this. Well, I'm just going to throw it out there. For me, in, in a broken home, that was impossible. It was impossible. I, I think it's impossible for a, a kid going through puberty to just stop sinning. That's hard. But if someone would have looked at me and said, hey, I want to help you through this. I want you to know that this is not just 
This is not just about the wrong, bad thing you're doing. Don't, don't just like look to this thing and just see sin, and that's, that's the only thing that's happening. What you need to understand is you need to understand that Christ has died for you. He has brought you into a relationship with God. He has made you righteous. The standard of your life is righteousness, not simply because you need to choose to not do what's wrong, but because you need to faithfully desire Christ. Like, like, you need to serve him. You need to walk with him. Like, this is about your relationship. This is not just about doing the right thing. And, and nobody told me that. And so I think this is so important, right? Sexuality is treated as an outlet of expressing faithfulness or not. It's not just, though it is, it's not just about right and wrong or gross and bad. Like, it can't be just that because that's not how the Bible treats it. So a godly life, then, is one that's shaped by the truths of God's word, right? Romans 6 says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your bodies to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness, right? The, the life of a believer is one that is conforming to the standard of his word. That's what our life is about conformity to the standard of God's word. Okay, if you want more, go find that other teaching I did on that Wednesday night. Uh, Main point two, how do we prepare our children for the inevitable question of sexuality? The reason I put inevitable question of sexuality is because currently our culture is forcing every single one of us to to have an answer. Your children will have to respond to this one way or another, And, and soon. Soon, 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 it will force them to give an answer. And if they don't currently have the, the skills or the truths to come up with that answer, then what's easiest is likely they'll just come up with the answer that's given them by culture. And I see that happening over and over and over again in our youth group. All right, so number one, we begin by pointing to creation as the unchanging standard of truth. Now, one thing on the Bible and interpretation uh, when we understand interpretation of Scripture, what we have to, and you see it every single Sunday, and we call it expository preaching, we let the Bible interpret the Bible. That's why we do exposition. We want Hebrews chapter 5 to be understood in light of Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 8. We don't want to just pull things out and just say, well, here, look, this is, this is true. We want the Bible to interpret the Bible, but what that also means is we believe the Bible is the only thing that can modify the Bible. So when you have something like covenants, the only reason we can say that the covenant made with Moses, the covenant of law, is fulfilled and abolished in Christ's death is because the Bible says that. That's the only reason we can say that that covenant stands no more, is because the Bible tells us that the covenant of grace now reigns in Christ. The same thing is true with sexuality. We can't look at Genesis 1 and be like, well, it's kind of old. I think it's time to... I think it's time to move on. Well, if the Bible doesn't move on, we don't get to move on. And the, the Bible never moves on. So let's talk about it. So Jesus and Paul, both of them, contrary to popular belief, they teach that a sexual ethic is bound to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So Matthew 5, 31, 32, Jesus says, It was also said, whenever, or, excuse me, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certif- certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality 
makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So here's Jesus. He's talking about um, divorce, and he's giving the exceptions for divorce, sexual immorality. And then go to 1 or 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. Paul says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So here's what's really important when we look at Jesus's. And this is why you need to be somebody that reads the Bible. You might be thinking, okay, you just read Matthew 5, and that literally has nothing to do with what you're saying. Well, actually, it has a lot to do with what we're saying. When he says at the end, um, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery, I'm thinking back to last week, and I'm thinking, man, this sounds like 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, where the reasoning for this adultery is actually grounded by Paul in the one fleshness, right? So what Jesus is actually doing is he is pointing back to creation, and he's saying, listen, if you've married someone, you, you are bound by covenant to them unless, right? You, you're, you're stuck with them. You, you've committed to them, and then Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, he kind of expands it, right? The two are one flesh. There's, there's something that's actually happening, right? So uh, what we mean is that God's design it, it still governs. To Jesus and Paul, when they think about issues of sexuality, when they think about issues of sexual immorality, they're thinking back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 for their argument. that They are. All right, point two. We must teach a proper understanding of sin and our personal sinfulness. This is hugely important. And let me just go ahead, because I'll say it probably 12 more times. This is all really important, but when we get to each of them, I'll just talk about how important that one is, okay? So just bear with me. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5.12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, right? So here's back to the point of kind of this understanding of like, this is just wrong, it's bad, it's gross. Uh, more than that, right? Greater than just simply being wrongdoing, sin separates us from God and makes us all reliant on grace. That's, that's who we are. If you are a believer, you are somebody who has at one point been separated from God, and you are now someone who is dependent on grace. That's, that's who you are, like intrinsically. You're a sinner, and you've been saved by grace, right? 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right? So no matter how our sin is expressed, whether it's through stealing or lying or sexual sin, no matter how it's expressed, we all need Jesus. There are no appropriate sins. So when we are teaching our children about topics like sexuality, we can do it like probably many of us were taught, and we can say, okay, well, man, I just, uh, I really hope that, you know, someone's not struggling with homosexuality because that's just awful. And I'm sitting over here, and I'm like, you know, I don't know a lot, and I am a teenager, but are we ever going to talk about divorce? And it's just like, 
we can do that. But what that does in us is I think that will create something within us that will have to be overcome later if we want to minister well to people in sin. Right? We can be the people who think that there are certain categories of sins that are not redeemable or that are just sins that make you way too far gone for the grace of God. But what I'm saying is that we were all sinners and we're all saved by grace if you've placed your faith in Christ. It's who you are. And so we are no better than anyone else. And there are no sins that we can look around at and say, well, you know, it's just more of an appropriate, classy sin. Okay. Unless you repent of that appropriate, classy sin, you're going to hell. We don't want to teach our kids about sexuality in a way that makes them think that they are more holy or better than somebody else. Because we are only who we are because of what Christ has done. And if we get to heaven one day and stand before God and say, well, I mean, at least I wasn't like that guy. I think whatever happens in that moment, it's going to be like, okay, well, why are you here? Because I'm better than that guy? No, your answer better be Christ crucified for a sinner like me. So we need to make sure that our children understand sin and their personal sinfulness. Right, that's, it's necessary. Number three, teach them about the necessity of grace. So this comes right off the back of point two. Right, we should take every opportunity to point to the grace of God as the answer to our brokenness and our ongoing failure with sin. So one of the beautiful things I think about Reformed theology and something like um, total depravity, that is that we are, uh, everything about us is affected by sin, is that when you start reading the Bible, you realize that sin is actually the backdrop that highlights grace. So grace is only necessary because of sin. Sin makes it necessary. And so if you want to see how beautiful grace is in your own life, Look at your sinfulness, because that's when your mind is going to be blown, when you're like, oh my goodness, Jesus died for someone like me? For that? Like that thing I'm ashamed of that I would never tell anybody and that I would be mortified if they found out about? He died for that, and that makes his grace all the greater? The answer is yes. Right? So our sin necessitates the need of grace. Right, Romans 5, 20 through 6, 1, Paul says, Now the law came to increase the trespass. Again, why are we increasing trespasses? It says, But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he follows it up with the necessary question, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The answer he gives eventually is by no means. But what Paul is saying is that when you look at your life and your sinfulness, it actually does expand your understanding of God's grace, right? right? It, it increases our, our ability to see the depths of God's grace and just how willing he was to die for even the most grievous, nasty, horrible, embarrassing acts of sin. He took them all on himself on the cross, every single one of them. And so what we can say then is that if he died for sin in general, that all sins can be found 
resting on the shoulders of Jesus Christ if you place your faith in him, then what that means is that no sin trumps grace. There, there are no sins that make grace um, unable to save. N- not one. Not is- issues of sexuality or any other thing. Uh, I had some scriptures here, and I feel like I forgot to put them on here. Yeah, I did. We'll just we'll skip those and move on. Okay, number four. Help them to see that the standard for a godly life is not self-expression, but imitation. Okay, this is the last scripture. Okay, maybe I didn't actually forget anything. Sorry. So 1 Peter chapter 1, it says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Right, So the standard for godly living is not self-expression. It's not a greater understanding of who we are and how we can best serve God. Primarily, it's about limitation of our sinful desires. So the Bible does not anywhere ever champion greater self-awareness. It champions holiness. Uh, Brad said something last week, and I just kind of was thinking about it. He, he mentioned kind of briefly about the Enneagram. And just so you know, when we preach, sometimes we just like, you know what, this is a good time to throw this in there. And so he didn't explain a lot about it. But as I was thinking about it, I don't think the Enneagram is inherently bad or wrong. Now, there are obviously roots of different things, and I understand. But when you look at just the average person using the Enneagram, I don't think there are bad, wrong, sinful intentions there. I think what Brad was saying is that we need to be really careful and understand that we live in a culture that thrives on understanding who you are at your core. Who, who are you? What is the best expression, the most faithful expression of who you are in your soul? Well, I think that can only really be so helpful because if you're trying to understand fleshly things, those things can only be understood by probably fleshly standards unless you're thinking about them biblically. Because when the Bible tells us about our flesh, it's always talking about our flesh in a way that's kind of, if not inherently sinful, dangerous. Right? It's, it's the thing that tempts you. Your flesh is the thing that tempts you to sin. Right? Your, your desires of the flesh, your passions of the flesh. And so we just want to be really careful if we get into like these self-help things and we don't start thinking, okay, well, how can I make the flesh better? Well, what Peter here is saying is that uh, if you want your flesh to be better, then pursue holiness. Like, don't pursue the flesh. Pursue Christ and his standard and how he has lived. That's what you're to do, right? So the scriptures call us not to find out who we truly are, but to focus on and pursue Christ. That's really important as we think about teaching our kids about sexuality. The world is going to tell you to find the truest you and who you really are. But what the Bible calls you to do is to pursue holiness, even if that means going against what you think at your core, who you are. And I mean, we deal with that all the time in youth group, talking to students and kind of having this conversation. It's like, well, I just really kind of think that this is who I am. And it's like, okay, that's, that, that may be true. You may really feel that this is who you are. But does Scripture allow you to express this? Is it an expression of holiness or is it an expression of your flesh? Right? Uh, number five, be highly aware of their outside influences. 
So that means the adults around them, their teachers, their leaders, their, their youth group leaders, their youth pastor, their whoever, their friends, and social media. So what we want to do is we want to moderate these, influence, these influences and help them to engage them in truth. None of these things, none of these things, no one around your child is morally neutral. No one and nothing is morally neutral. Everything and everyone is teaching our children, whether it's their actual teachers or whether it's me or whether it's you or whether it's the person checking you out at the grocery line who says these blankety-blank asparaguses are super nice. I don't know. Like, they just taught your kid something. Nobody's morally neutral. And listen, I love me some blankety-blank asparagus. But there is no one and there is nothing that is morally neutral. And so moderate these influences and help them not just to stay away from them, but help them learn how to engage them in truth. So help them to understand, okay, well, when you go to their grocery store, when you go to school, or when you're around these friends, or when you hear this or hear that, you need to be prepared in knowing how to form your thoughts, even if you don't end up speaking those thoughts. You have to learn how to think about the world. And that's actually, we'll, we'll talk about cultivating a Christian worldview um, next Sunday in our last session. But it's so important, right? We need to know who the teachers, right? And that's everybody, who the teachers are in their lives and what they're teaching. So be the helicopter parent, know all the things, have all the FBI spy stuff to see what's going on on their phones, do it all. I would much rather have my children be upset with me than be taught something horrible or be catfished or any other thing because the world is an evil place and they are being taught something. And for instance, like just go to TikTok and just, and I actually don't have it and I don't have it, but, um, and you can have it or not. I don't care. I'm not having it, but you can scroll through Here's the thing, I don't even actually know how it works, but I know how people tell me it works. So you, can, so you can scroll, man, I'm 33 and I'm acting like I'm about 88 right now. So you take your thing and you, well, anyways, you scroll through, you don't curate yourself what comes up. What I do know is that there are some very, very, very famous, and actually they've been in news recently, some very famous transgender individuals that got their start on TikTok. Well, all you have to do is scroll and they tell you a joke or they do the endearing thing. And the next thing you know, you're a teenager and you're like, I mean, they're just a really nice person. I mean, what's so wrong? They're just really nice. Well, that may be true. They may be very nice, but they're teaching you something. They're, they're modifying the, the way you see the world. And if we don't think that's true, then maybe we don't understand either. I mean, who wants to look at a person and just immediately hate them because of their choices or whatever? Now, some of us are capable of that, and you should repent of that too. But I think most of us want to look at those people with empathy and compassion, and we want to love them. Well, if you don't know what love and empathy and compassion actually looks like through the eyes of Christ, then maybe what is actually going to happen is maybe you'll start changing the way you think. And I think all of our children. Our teenagers, they're all susceptible. And then finally, number six, be the one who asks the hard questions and be prepared with biblical answers. So while we said last week that we use our child's sexual development as our metric for talking about sex, so um, if you weren't here, simply what we were saying is just 
as your children develop, be one step ahead of them in the conversations that you're having with them, right? So we're looking to their development in, in kind of tempering how we talk about it, right? If you go home today and you're changing your two-year-old diaper and you're like, hey, I just kind of want to explain where babies come from. They may not be ready. I don't know. Except that just two years ago, they're like, nah, I got it. I know how it happened. I just did this. So as we think about that, though, when we think about something like sexuality, we also have to consider culture and circumstances when discussing. Right? There, again, are no neutral observers. Our kids are not looking at the world and thinking, so we homeschool our kids. Our kids are not walking into the public and thinking, man, you know, I'm so happy I'm in my homeschool bubble right now. Like, no, when they see a, a, a man coming down the aisle at Publix dressed as a woman, they're going to be like, have some questions. Or whenever we're around my sister and she has a girlfriend, they're going to be like, it's really weird that my aunt has a girlfriend. We need to also use not just their development, but what's happening in culture as our metric for what we teach about and when. So if your kids are in public school, for instance, and they are in the third, fourth, fifth grade, you have to figure out how to stalking, start talking about transgenderism. You have to. So we have to see that culture is going to force this on us one way or another, and we can either think like, okay, well, we can just, we can just keep them pure for a little longer. All you have to do most of the time is go to the grocery store, and they've now lost that sense of pure bliss about how the world actually works. All right, so we need to be keenly aware of the temptation to see common as natural. That's really important. <laughs> the, I mean, just think about yourself. The more you're around something, the more you become desensitized by that thing. All right, it's all of us. I mean, you're, you're around somebody in the military, and they're just dropping F-bombs and all this constantly, you kind of honestly just don't even hear it anymore. But if you were to come into church and Brad would be like, good blank and morning, you'd be like, this isn't right. <laughs> because it's just not common in this context. Now listen, I'm kinda, I, it's kind of silly, and there's three people that laugh. Thank you, by the way. But, but that's how we work, isn't it? We become desensitized to things. And if we're thinking that our children are not becoming desensitized by these things, then I, I think we're mistaken. So as especially as it relates to worldview, and we'll talk about it again, like I said, next week, we can begin to walk around the world and see the normal things that are happening, and the next thing we know, we're just like, well, that's just the way the world works. I mean, is it really that bad? Is it really that wrong? Everyone's doing it. I, I mean, that's, that's just kind of how we function. Okay, and then one final thing. You guys want to go ahead and make your way up, special guests? Go ahead, Jared, get your treat or whatever you're getting, and then make your way up here. Um, we need to prepare our children to minister to sexually broken people. So here's what I think, and this is just me kind of playing the role of a prophet. I think in the next 30 years, something that we're going to come up against and what our children are going to come up against, and I think we should praise God for this, is 20 or 30 years from now, part of the church, and maybe it's a very small part, but I hope it is a part, is uh, people who have gone through um, 
sexual transition and then they've come to Christ. That will happen. So we need to be preparing our children to understand their own sinfulness, to understand every sinner's need for grace, and then to understand how to minister well to people who are sexually broken. Because there's coming a day, I really think, and I, again, I think it may be a small population, but I hope it is a population of people in our church who don't look like what they claim to be biologically because they've made mistakes. They've fallen into the temptation of sin, and they've, they've done things that are, in some cases, irreversible. Will our children be ready to minister alongside of people like that? Or is their sin too great for grace? I think that's a question. But I also think it's a reality of what we'll face soon and eventually. I hope that's what happens in our churches. But I hope we're ready when it does. Because I would hate for people to be redeemed and have made mistakes, and yet their mistakes are way worse than our mistakes, and so we just can't minister alongside of you. So we got to be prepared. Hey, welcome, special friends. Okay, so introduce yourself real quick. I'm Kristen Wise, and I'm the children's ministry director. Yeah, we know that. Who are you? <laughs> I am Jared Wise, um, otherwise known as Kristen's husband, which is fine. If you want to call me that, that's a great personality trait to have. But I am uh, the deacon of security here at Cross Point. I in the sky. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, he's the one who's asking for machine gun nests in the foyer and things like that. Um, it's not, you're laughing. He's not kidding. It's, um, okay, so what are some of the influences that have shaped your children's views of sexuality for good and for bad, and how did and do you combat those wrong views? So you guys have teenage daughters and one daughter who is now graduated from high school and in college. So the question. Yeah, he's right. So we do, we have three teenage girls. Um, two of them are adults now. Um, and so um that has been um that's been an interesting transition in our life but i think the sort of just normal social influences social media school um extracurricular activities just being kind of out in the world you know obviously you know we say a lot we're not of the world but we are in the world and so i think a lot of that um has really greatly influenced them um and I, I would say, and not that we've done a great job of this, but a great way to combat that, uh, I made a note here as Tyler was talking, is to not be afraid to modify your kid's activity um, to help influence their behavior. So, um, you know, monitoring their social media, knowing who they're with all the time. Um, you know, we, uh, we had a you know, one of our daughters played softball for many years. And as she got older, um, that started to introduce um, some, you know, some things that I don't think we were huge fans of and, you know, kind of had to make the decision on whether we were going to continue to allow her to participate in that, you know, just kind of things, things like that. So I think that um, the biggest thing, and then also, you know, and more importantly, just moder uh, modeling um, good, appropriate behavior and just, just being gracious towards them, I think. And I would say, because you're talking a lot more for the bad, I would say for the good, I mean, I praise the Lord that we have a foundation of discipling our kids in Scripture from a really young age. Um, our kids 
would tell you that they, none of them remember a time not being a part of a church family, not hearing about Jesus, not reading their Bibles, all of those things. So um, for the good, we have this foundation, um, but then as they grow and as a natural part of development, especially when they get towards middle school and puberty, um, their brains are seeking to withdraw in a way from you and see what the world has to offer. And that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. That's part of their development, but um, it can be really bad if you're not involved. And so um, I, I think we have seen some of the consequences of allowing friends, school, extracurriculars, all the things that Jared listed um, to be influences. Um, and so we've had to learn to combat that. A lot of that looked like um, just constantly inviting their friends and their people to our house so that we had and we could earn the right to speak into their friends' lives and modeling what two people who love Jesus look like in the world. Um, a lot of that also looked like like Jared said, just being really in their business and really knowing everything that they're doing and and knowing exactly who their friends are and who are their friends' parents and, you know, do we want them to hang out with this person or, you know, and the hardest part of that is that our kids did all and have all gone to public school. And so that has been a significant challenge. So that has more so looked like being in great contact with their teachers and just constantly like being a voice in their teacher's ear, getting to hear about what are our kids experiencing and what's going on at school. Yeah, that's great. Okay. So what are some of the questions of sexuality that you've dealt with over the course of your children's developing years? So, um, all three of our children have a compassion for people who are broken and lost, and they have a compassion for social justice issues. Um, and so they would speak out against things like racism, where things kind of have gotten confusing is especially the LGBTQ agenda has moved into the realm of social justice. And so it looks like it's a good thing to be an ally, to be somebody who is on the side of rights for LGBTQ people, right? So it, it looks like it's good. And it actually, the, the agenda would say that if you're not on the side of, of LGBTQ rights and, and issues, if you are not an ally, you're actually against us and, and harming us. And, and the language that the culture would tell you is, is really strong. Um, and so that started to really creep in and become really confusing. Um, I, you know, I, yeah, that, that I think, so th that brought up a lot of questions like, what does this mean? And does God's word really say? And, but, but that word that was used, you know, this one person said that that's not actually what that word meant. It actually means this thing. Um, I mean, I've, I've sat through a PowerPoint presentation from a child's, one of my kids' friends that was all about how the word homosexuality in scripture as we read it today is actually not what that, may, what that meant back when it was written. And if you knew the original Hebrew and the original Greek, I had a 15-year-old doing that. So like the, the feelings are strong <laughs> at that time. Um, and so we, a lot of the questions that started to come our way was like, but aren't, you know, like, ha, ha, but does God's word really say this thing? And how can a good and gracious God say that somebody who's 
natural instinct is to be attracted to this other person be wrong? How can that be wrong? Isn't God loving? I think you think you got that one. <laughs> okay. So have any of your children's, and this kind of goes with this, and I know the answer a little bit, but have any of your children's previous or current views on sexuality surprised or shocked you? And I've heard, so this is one of the things I hear somewhat often is a parent will come to us and be like, hey, uh, like they're in youth, they're in church, we know what they know, and then they came home and said this. Like, what in the world? Has that happened to you? Or are you guys perfect? I was going to say yes, but then you asked two questions. So, <laughs> yes, we have been surprised. No, we are not perfect. Um, yeah, and, and surprised is interesting, is like kind of an interesting way to put it, because like she said, our kids are in public school, and so I don't think we were shocked that they had been exposed and were very confused but I, I mean you know our kids did grow up in church and they did hear the gospel and so I think we were a little blinded like we had blinders on but I can assure you that those blinders were ripped off very very early on um and so so for those of y'all who don't know I, I was in the army for about 15 years our kids were in DOD schools, which is a very insulated community. If you're in the army and you don't realize that, uh, I uh, just uh, love the DOD schools because they are very insulated. And our kids came out when I retired into public school. And, and I kind of think our first sort of exposure to this was as early as like sixth grade. And our kids are older now. And so some of y'all's kids will be exposed to this much earlier than that. But um, so I think that was the shocking and surprising part was that it was like, we were like, oh, we got some time before we have to deal with this, and we did not. Um, you know, I mean, literally, like early middle school, uh, we were dealing with exposure to these issues. Echoing what Jared said, there was sort of a like, oh, okay, so you're more leaning towards this compassion towards this group of people that is not fueled by a desire for evangelism. It's actually view, like you're almost kind of coming at me combatively. Um, and I, you know, I, I, kn I see now that our children, especially around puberty, are looking for acceptance. They are looking to be valued by more than just their parents. They are looking for connection to other people. And that's going to come from their friends. And the kids at school, I'm just going to be really real, the kids at school who are all all the things, who are you know not the gender they were born with or they are attracted to same sex or, or they're attracted to everybody, I, there's a lot. Um, all the definitions are a lot. But all of those kids are the most accepting kids in school. And if I'm being really honest, it's all the kids who um, say that they love Jesus, who are really popular, who are mean. And they're not accepting of the kids who are a little quirky or a little weird or socially awkward. It's the kids who have all of these other things going on who are the most accepting to everybody and want to bring them into their circle and like, it's okay to be who you are and, and all of these things. And like, 
that can sound good and it can feel good to a kid who's looking for acceptance and value and connection. And so I think that had a really, really strong influence on our kids. And it was surprising. And it was, I, I don't think I, um, I think I took that part for granted a little bit. Yeah. And, and I mean, I'm, I'll be careful here because I know most of your kids, or a lot of y'all's kids, and I love all of them. But that part that she was just talking about, that is a place where as Christians, we really need to talk to our kids. Because even like kids that our kids had been friends with for a very long time, and as they transition schools and begin to go to school together, some of those kids were really ugly to our kids. And it really, really turned our kids off to being a part of the circle of Christian kids in school. So encourage your kids to not be mean kids please um like yes like like to be compassionate um because a lot of the stereotypes that christians get in in the social world a lot of that is very real in the middle and high school setting where like the popular kids are the kids that go to church and the popular kids and the kids that go to the church are kind of the kids that are cool and they have money and they have all this stuff and they are just mean to people and and so just encourage your kids to not to just not be that yeah well and i mean case in point we uh, i said probably four years ago we had some challenging kids come into youth group and we had some kids from youth just be like i'm out and listen man don't let your kids do that like please don't let your kids do that let them learn in an environment like this how to minister and love challenging people um so just that's a side note. Okay, last question. What have you guys learned that you wish you had known in the beginning? I don't think we have that much time. In 30 seconds. Yeah, right. Uh, no, I, I think the the biggest thing, not the biggest thing, I think one thing I learned was going back to what I said about, and, 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 and something that you said um, is, like, your kids will have to respond to this. I don't care if you're a homeschool parent. I don't care if you're a preacher with preacher's kids. I don't care if your kids go to DOD. Yeah, that was for you. I don't care if you your kids go to DOD schools or public schools or any of that stuff. Like your kids will have to account for this. And in a world of social media and in a world of very public, like cancel culture and all of that stuff, if they choose God's side over sin, it is going to be very difficult for them. And if we're not careful, they will choose the easier route because it is less painful. And again, going back to sort of the Christian kids in school, you've got a bunch of mean Christian kids. And if they choose the Christian side, now they got to deal with a bunch of mean Christian kids and they're getting like bullied by like the kids that they're saying, hey, we don't agree with your lifestyle. And so like high school can become a very, very lonely, very painful place to be if like if if they choose God's side over sin, so just just be aware of that. Um, I, you know, I, I think there's so much. Yeah, I think um, we were we were monitoring everything um, that our kids had access to, like that. So we that was very helpful because that led us to kind of clue us in on what our kids were thinking and feeling, and kind of you know, what, what was going on in each of our kids. 
um, pretty early on. So that was really helpful. So we're big proponents of being like all up in their business. Monitor everything. Look at all their text messages. They don't have rights. Their phones can't be in their rooms at night. Like that, no. It's a privilege. It's not a right. No. Be all up in it. Um, I literally just... I hope this doesn't like freak anybody out, but I just uh, listened to a podcast about youth leadership and youth. And this mom was like, had approached a youth pastor really, really freaking out. It's, it's kind of funny, but not funny. Um, It's horrible, but had approached a youth pastor like freaking out because her kid was on the Bible app for like six or seven hours a day because he didn't have socials, didn't have anything else on the phone. And she's like, what, why, you know, and the pastor's like, what are you talking about? That's great. And she's like, no, not great. Looked at the messages. He has friended his girlfriend and is sending nudes in the Bible app, like send help. Um, so like where, where there's a will, there's a way. Um, so be all up in their business. Um, and that, that, that was a great help to us. Um, something I wish I knew was probably, we have really frank conversations in our family, um, pretty early on. Um, I loved listening to Samantha and Jeremy last week. So I'm proponents of talking about sex and talking about it early. Um, and so that also helped, but I do wish that we had taken more time earlier on to talk about these particular issues. Um, Jared does have a sister who is a lesbian and is married. And so we did talk about that a lot and obviously have always treated her with like a lot of compassion and grace, but we also don't, we don't live in the same state as them. So we don't spend a lot of time around them. So it was just like moments, you know, one time a year we're spending time with them and my kids are like, huh, okay. Cool. Um, And so it was an opportunity for a conversation, but it wasn't always woven into everything. And now what I see is like, we probably should have been talking about it more frequently than we were and really checking in with our kids and being the one I appreciated you saying, be the person to ask your kids hard questions because um, be the one to ask your kid like, when you are at the grocery store and the girl behind the counter has the, you know, obviously she looks like a girl, but has a, you know, tag that says he, him, she wants to be referred to as a male or, you know, anything like that. You like interact with that in the world. You catch a glimpse of it. Asking your child, like, how, how does that make you feel? And what do you think about that? And if you had to be in the same workplace as that person, how do you think you'd treat them? And what if they had really hard questions about your faith and what Jesus says about their lifestyle and like, like have those questions early and, and just be talking about that and be modeling grace without affirmation of that lifestyle and be modeling repentance in ourselves. I think for us too, that was something that was big. Like we have to model repentance to our kids and be repentant to them in order for them to see what that really looks like. Yeah, and I yeah, and to echo what she said, I think for those of you who have younger kids, I think it's more of a struggle for y'all because like, you know, we were like, you know, it was like the birds and the bees for us talking to our kids. And then like, and then kind of it was like a little bit of like, hey, 
like homosexuality is coming into the world. Now all of y'all got to talk to your kids about all of these like uh, like all of these other like gender dysmorphia issues. So I don't envy that. Um, our kids were kind of exposed to that, unfortunately, publicly. And we did have to answer some questions about it, but obviously they're older and a little more mature. So I would say um, I don't envy y'all on that, but talk to them like early on. Like I said, we were in sixth grade when we first got exposed. Most of y'all's kids will be much younger um, when they get exposed to that stuff. But and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of end my part on this and say the other thing that I learned is lean on your church family, y'all. Like I cannot say enough about the people like at cross point right that like just rallied around our family um so like you know like you know coming from like like where one where i came from like the the stream of the church that i came from growing up and then like kind of like being an army guy and like trying to this need to be like macho and private like i lean towards like not putting my business out there um and i learned very quickly that that's not a way that we can we can't function that way and so just the way that like the church, like in our friends and our community group and other like just cross point, like just friends of ours, like it was, um, it made it a lot easier and has continued to make it a lot easier to walk through for sure. Um, so I would encourage you to plug yourself in here because if you're not already, uh, although I'm probably speaking to the choir because you showed up here at 9.40 or 9.30 for Bible study, uh, but plug yourself in um, because the folks here are wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I would just say if you have more questions or you are dealing with these things or at some point you find yourself dealing with these things in your family, find people in the church who have already walked through it or find people who are currently walking through it and get to know them. Thank our guests and come back next week for the final week. <laughs>